Hey, welcome, welcome. Uh, we're in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're at. Also, uh, if you would, turn to Ecclesiastes 12. You can ignore the 1 Corinthians 15 there. We'll just read it. But uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Ecclesiastes 12. You guys can turn there. Just want to say what's up. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Um, only one quick announcement, and then we'll get right into the Word. Here's the one announcement. I know many, many of you serve, but we need like some summer servants. We need some people who would serve uh, with us summer. So uh, I know a lot of people can be gone and traveling and out during the summer. If you could serve like once a week, twice a month, four times a month, I don't know. But if you could serve at all in any capacity, that would be awesome. Uh, Whether it's greeting, saying hi, holding a baby, praying over our kids, loving on them, uh, maybe sound or set up, tear down, whatever it might be. We just want to make that available. We really could use some help in different ways. I know our ministry leads and our team leads would be so thankful. Um, So you can go to our website, click on serve, find a team, find a rhythm. Honestly, once a month really would be a blessing. So if you could serve in any way. And I'm going to wait a couple of weeks before we get more clear, but uh, this will be helpful because it, it's possible the next few weeks, maybe in July, we might be transitioning back to Quiet Waters Elementary. Um, we're waiting on word on some of that, and we'll wait till we fully know, but uh, I bring that up because we could use some help in this process. So uh, if you'd like to serve this summer, there are lots of opportunities and ways, and we would love for you to be part of that. Um, we're in 2 Corinthians 5, all right? So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let me just kind of pick up where we left off last week and kind of catch you up to speed a little bit. Um, this is a book that we're going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and really trying to find the heart and theme of this book, where Paul says to us here in chapter 5 how we are a new creation in Christ. And so the idea is we're looking at this book as a new way to live, a new way to do life, a new way to do relationships, a new way to do conflict, a new way to serve, a new way to give, a new way in which we, are, we identify with Christ. And Paul's kind of shown us a new way to live as followers of Jesus. And we're coming out of 2020 going, hey, we want to follow Jesus the way the scriptures intend for us to follow Jesus. So that's where we're walking through this book. Now, if you're with us last week, or maybe you missed last week, we finished chapter four, and Paul was giving us these paradoxes in the Christian life. And these paradoxes kind of go like this. Uh, Power comes through weakness. Life through death, renewal through decay. And we are looking at these different paradoxes in our Christian life saying, if you want power, it's going to come through weakness. You want renewal in your life, it's going to come through decay. And so as we, I just went over that, but um, as we walk through that, we kind of look to how basically this life that we're living, it's not about the things that are seen, but about the things that are unseen. Last week, Paul ended with saying, hey, set your mind basically, not on the things of this world, but on the things above. Paul says, the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And he basically is calling us to live with this eternal mindset. And so this is kind of my plea and heart for our church as we walk through this book. How do we not set our mind on the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen? Honestly, how do we embrace this heavenly mindset? How do we live for heaven? How do we live with eternity in mind? The idea that this is not all that there is. There's so much more to life than just what you and I see. And Paul's inviting us not to live for just the day-to-day, but to live for the things that are unseen. I love what one author says about the Corinthians, who kind of knew the culture, knew the context. Here's what he says. Gary Miller says, to be a Corinthian was to live for the moment. To be a Corinthian was to talk yourself up. To be a Corinthian was to be impressed by a good education, a a religious allegiance, or a, a good brain and good speech. To be a Corinthian was to switch political and religious allegiance every time the wind changed. 
You see, he's saying that the, the issue within this culture of the Corinthians was they live for the moment. They're constantly being tossed to and fro. Paul, throughout this book, is trying to call them to a, a bigger and deeper and more spiritual and eternal mindset. He's saying, don't live for the moment. This moment that we're living for, it, it is, it's just a moment. But there's an eternal way to glory ahead. And basically, call, Paul is like calling all of us saying, I know that not just them, but us. We are tempted to live for the moment. I am. We are tempted to live for what you and I can see. But Paul is calling us to live for the things that are unseen, the eternal things, the things that go past what we see. So here's my hope. Again, I don't want to just read this. Actually, what's cool about today's text, it's, there's actually like no imperatives. There's like no commands. There's no saying, hey, go do this, Christians. It's really more indicatives, meaning it's just statements of who you are. It's statements of what Christ has done, that you have a heavenly body prepared for you. You have a heavenly home prepared for you. Paul is just basically trying to remind you and I of what we have in Christ. And there's so much we have. And I think sometimes as followers of Jesus, we just, we just need to like sit with what we have in Christ. And we need to know what, what Christ has done for us. And this is kind of more of that. That really the title today and the points today are heavenly body, heavenly home. Paul is just trying to say, you have a heavenly body and you have a heavenly home. And there's this promise of this future, heavenly, glorious body. And there's this promise of a new home, like what you and I were made for. So I just want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 1 through 8. That's going to be our text today. And I know I, I, I've mentioned this before, and I, I really mean this. It's like weird to say this, but this is like my favorite chapter in the Bible. And I feel even weird saying that, probably for the last decade of my life. Maybe that will change in a couple of years, but not right now. Like this is really just it for me. And so we're going to take a few weeks to walk through chapter 5. And I want us to see it in context because I think it'll mean so much more. But at the same time, like I almost feel like, oh God, this is just so weighty. This is so powerful. And the best part of, the, of today might just be simply reading the Bible. So let's just read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 1 through 8. Remember, Paul just said that the inward or the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. Paul just said, don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. And he says in chapter 5, verse 1, for we know, we know that if the, the tent, that is our earthly home, this body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our earth, our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Naked, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared uh, us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse six, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we should rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Heavenly body and heavenly home. These are two things that Paul says are promised to those who believe in Jesus. A new body one day and a new home. And I just want to pray and just kind of invite the Lord to speak and move. And for us, really, again, to embrace this, just this heavenly mindset that we would not live for the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. And this is what Paul's trying to redirect people's hearts and attentions from the cares of this world to heaven above. So let's just pray and invite the Lord to speak. Father, we thank you so much for this time. It, it really is humbling to be able to open up your word. God, we thank you just for who you are. Even as we just saying, God, that 
You are so mighty, so wonderful, so selfless, so generous, so faithful. God, you are. We just want to praise you and say there is no one like you. And God, I just ask that this time would be, again, so much more than just trying to learn new things as much as just embrace who you are and what you've done for us. God, I ask that you would clarify any questions around heaven, death, resurrection, what's next. God, I ask that you would just stir within us this a heavenly mindset, that this group of people here, Jesus, would live for things that are above that, God, we would pursue you and seek first your kingdom. And that, God, we would just engage better with the things that are unseen. And that we direct our attention and our heart to you now in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. You know, I want to ask you a simple question. And it's kind of like a daunting question that we could explore a lot. But I'm curious, when you think of heaven, like what comes into your mind? Like what do you think about heaven? When you think about dying or you think about what happens after this life, and you think about just heaven, like how do you imagine it? What do you think of? It's funny, I think a lot of TV shows kind of influence our thought of, on heaven. I think even like medieval paintings or Renaissance paintings kind of influence our, our thoughts of view on heaven. But what do you think about when you think about what's after this? Like wh- how do you imagine heaven? What do you imagine it to be like? And there's so many ways we could approach this and answer this. But I, I think for those who don't believe in Jesus, uh, for those who don't believe maybe even in heaven or the afterlife, they just think when you die, it just kind of ceases to exist. There are those though who think, well, if there is a heaven, it's probably gonna be incredibly boring. Like if there is an afterlife, it sounds kind of miserable. I think there's a thought about heaven that like once we get there, you're just gonna be like eternally bored, right? Uh, David Lloyd George, he was once the prime minister of England. He said this about heaven. He says, when I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where time would be perpetual Sundays with perpetual services from which there would be no escape. All right, I hope none of you feel this way, right? If you feel this about Sundays, I'm so sorry. We got to change that a little bit. Um, But there are many who feel this way. They think it's just perpetual Sundays with perpetual services, and it kind of sounds more terrifying than hell. Actually, another author, Isaac Asimov, uh, he was a science fiction writer, wrote iRobot, things like that. He said, I don't believe in an afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. Now, I'm reading these quotes because this is a common thought. Now, just because you, you don't believe something doesn't exist doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but these are common thoughts. Like, I think that if it does exist, it's probably going to be terribly boring. It's going to be awful. No, and I honestly think the enemy, I think Satan is genius. If he can get people to think that heaven will be boring, if he can get people to think that heaven's going to be miserable, why would we talk about it? Why would we invite anyone into it? Why would we say, come on, you should follow me and follow Jesus because you know what? It's going to be really boring up there forever. Like, why would we do that? Like, I think he's brilliant. I don't think he just wants people to deny the existence or reality of the afterlife. I think he wants people who believe it to believe it's just going to be awful and miserable. But see, we got to understand when it comes to God and who God is, his character's nature, God is joy. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. That you can't separate joy from God. You can't separate wetness from water. You can't separate joy from God. It's impossible. That's just who God is. In his, pres- ple- 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 can't even say it. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. Like, meaning just, that's just who he is. Like, we got to understand, like, in God, just with him, like, God's the author of laughter. God's the author of joy. God's the author of wit and humor. God is the creator of all things that are good. And so, in his presence, yes, there is fullness of joy. And I think Satan is brilliant to get people to think that eternity or heaven would just be perpetual Sunday services, where I hope you don't feel that way, but just be perpetually boring and miserable. And we have to fight that. 
We have to realize what Paul's saying here. He's like, there's this longing. I have a longing to be in the presence of the Lord and have this new body. He's like, we long for this. You know, I don't know if you long for heaven. Maybe, to be honest, some of you are like, I don't long for heaven. Like, life is good. You know, maybe you don't crave it. Maybe you don't want it. I think some of you maybe go, but life is kind of, at the same time, painful, dark. It's, it's difficult. You know, I think if we were to be honest with all of ourselves, all the things we long for in life, power, success, just intimacy, deep relationships, all of those things we long for and pursue can only be satisfied in the person of Jesus and in the place of heaven. Like, I think all of those things we really crave cannot be found in this world. I think C.S. Lewis said it best. He said it like this. There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. You know, sometimes I feel like I don't desire it, but then when I realize I crave all these things and the only place I can find it in is in heaven. I realize it's only found in a person. I love how Randy Alcorn says it. He's this author and pastor of a book called Heaven. If you get a chance, read a book. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's just called Heaven. It's brilliant. And in this book, he basically says this, everyone, all of you, myself included, he says, everyone here was created for a person and a place. Jesus is the person and heaven is the place. Everyone was created for a person and a place. Jesus is the person, heaven is the place. And those two things are inseparable. You can't have heaven without Jesus and you can't have Jesus without heaven. They go hand in hand. And says, this is what we we're made for. This is what we we're created for. But for us to be there, we can't be there in this body. This body couldn't handle that weight of glory. We would need a new body. And this is what Paul's promising. He's saying, there is a new body because we couldn't handle it in this body. So we're gonna look at two main thoughts today when it comes to this longing for heaven. Number one is this, longing for a heavenly body. And number two, longing for a heavenly home. Longing for a heavenly body and longing for a heavenly home. The first point will be a lot longer, so let me be clear. And really, it's only two points. So let's look at the first one. Number one is this, longing for a heavenly body. This is what Paul is describing in verse one through five. Let's read verse one. Here's what Paul says. He says, we know, we know that if the, the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul says, we know we have a building from God. That if this tent, this body is destroyed, we have a building from God. Let me just say here, in the first like, chapter or two of, of Corinthians, uh, Paul loves to say, we have. Like He likes to remind people of all that we have in Christ. We'll put it up here. Look at this. He says, we have this ministry. We have this treasure. We have the same spirit of faith. We have a building from God. I just love how Paul is like trying to remind the church, look at all that we have in Christ. Like, Can we just for a second enjoy all that we have in Christ? He goes, you have a treasure. You have the same spirit of faith. You have a building from God, a new body. Like there's so much we have in Christ. And I feel like a part of our job is to say, don't forget of all that we have in Christ. And then he says this though. He begins by saying, we know, we know this. Now this is interesting. Paul's not like, we hope, we're trusting. You know, hopefully one day we'll have a new body. He goes, we know, we know that if this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I love this about Paul because we know this. Because Jesus died and rose again, because he knows what death is like, he knows what resurrection is like, our faith and trust is in him. He can tell us what the afterlife is like. We know this. We know this. This is more than a hopeful feeling. This is like assurance of what we have. And then Paul, think what he says. What what does he compare life to? What does he compare our body to? He compares our body to a tent. 
He goes, we know that if our body, this tent is destroyed. Now, this makes sense because what was Paul's job? Paul was a tent maker, right? Acts 18, Paul for a living made tents. I just picture Paul working on tents and making tents, getting so sick of tent making. He's like, this is just like my body. I'm sick of this thing. Like, I don't know if you have, we have campers, like if you guys like to camp or you like, like tents. Like, I hate camping. My wife's a camper. She loves camping. I despise it. I'm like, whenever you go camping, I'm like, I know why they made homes because this is miserable, right? Like, if you like tents, the idea of like it's flimsy, it's hard to set up, it's like fragile, you feel like the wind blows it away. I'm like, this is absolutely miserable. Paul's like, that's our body. It's flimsy, it's fragile, it's unreliable. And I just picture him working on tents like, but one day we'll have a building from God, not made with hands. Oh, like I just picture Paul like looking at his job and just finding redemption in what he was doing. And I, I love this comparison because it's so true. You look at our body and you go, man, I'm, I'm in it. I'm just, I'm just here for a little bit. It's crazy when, when he says we know if our body, this tent is destroyed, uh, this word destroyed is, in the, is literally meaning to take down. Like when you take down a tent, he's like, you know, when you take down your tent, you know that when you come to the end of your life and you kind of just take it down, like that's the language he's using. Like when you pack up to leave, when you pack up to go home, that's what the language he's using for destroyed. He's like, we know we pack up to go. We have a building from God. Like this will come to an end. Now, here's what's really interesting that a lot of people point out. He says in verse one, now we know, and then he says, if. Do you guys look at that in verse one? He says, if the tent, that is our earthly home is destroyed. Now, why does he say if our tent is destroyed? Like we know that everyone dies. Why does he say if our tent is destroyed? If, because Paul, like many other apostles, had this belief and mindset that there would be a generation that would not see death, that there would be a generation that would not have to pack up, that there would be a generation that would be in this tent and just immediately receive their new tent or their new home, I should say. You know, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, but just listen to this. And I know you've probably heard this, but he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Let me just, let's just look at this. He goes, we shall not all die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Everyone will, who believes in Jesus will receive a new body. But he says, there are a group of people who will not all sleep, who will not all die. There seems to be this hopeful expectation of a generation that would not see death. Paul seemed to have this mindset. He goes, we know if, if. Paul seemed to have a mindset that his generation would be the generation that would not see death. I really do believe that within every generation, God wants to stir within believers, a generation that says, you know what? This might be the generation that won't see death. Like have this hopeful expectation of Jesus' return. Now, obviously there's questions about when will this happen? How will this happen? What will this look like? There's so many questions around that within the church, but there is still this mindset that there will be a generation that does not see death. I would love for that to be our generation. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know when or how that fits in. It's not my point. My point is to say there seems to be this mindset of a generation that would be immediately transformed. And I love that Paul even says this, but then he goes, but you know what? If we do die, if we do die, if our tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens. This is really a reference back to John 2. Remember Jesus said, hey, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. Like, I will do that. This idea of not made with hands is like, no, no, this is not me. I could never do this. Only God could give this. Only God could do this. Now, here's the question. Like, it begs a question for all of us. What will our bodies be like in heaven? Because he says, we know that if this tent is t- destroyed, taken down. We have a building from God not made with hands, but this new body is eternal. So what will our bodies be like in heaven? This is a fun question to think about. 
I mean, biblically speaking, like looking at the resurrection of Jesus, looking at the promises in Revelation in 1 Corinthians 15, I mean, if we just step back and say, what does the Bible say about our resurrected bodies? What will our bodies be like in heaven? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. This is how Paul describes this change from uh, perishable to imperishable. 1 Corinthians 15, 42, Paul says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks a lot about resurrection. And his idea is this, like, listen, just like there's different body types, like, you know, you have fish, you know, fish in the sea, animals on land, human bodies. He goes, you're going to need a heavenly body. Like, just like my body wouldn't survive in the ocean, this body wouldn't survive in heaven. He goes, you need a heavenly body. He goes, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in honor. It is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. And he describes this body like we need a new body to even just live or habitate in heaven. Like, we need a new body for this. Now, I love this because throughout the Bible, there is this idea and mindset. We're kind of going back to the Edenic state. We're going back to what Adam and Eve had in the garden, where there was no sickness, no death, no pain, no cancer, no handicaps, where sin does not just plague my soul and my spirit, but sin plagues my body. Salvation is not just redemption of your soul and spirit. Salvation is also redemption of your body. And I love this because my body, this weak body, will be sown into the ground in dishonor, but it'll be raised in honor. It'll be sown into the ground. I'll go into the ground perishable, but raised imperishable. I mean, this is the hope that you and I have. I mean, if you think about this, because if you ever experienced even some sort of pain or sickness for a little bit, we've all like, I want a new body, right? Like we're all like, this is painful. But if you live with this ongoing sense of pain or handicap, I mean, even more so you go, I want this new body. You know, Joni Erickson Tata, she's an author, writer, speaker who, she's now, I believe, in her 60s, but she wrote different books on heaven. Uh, around 17 years old, she got in a diving accident, and she broke her neck, and she became a quadriplegic from the neck down. And so she can't really move any of her body. She does paintings, like she'll put a paintbrush in her mouth, and she's, it's amazing what she's done with her life, how God has used her greatly. But she's a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and just living in the state, obviously, she's had a lot of time to think about heaven and what that will be like. And here's what she says about the body, and I love it. She says, one day, one day, no more bulging middles or balding tops. No varicose veins or crow's feet. No more cellulite or support hose or forget those thunder thighs and highway hips. Just a quick leapfrog over the tombstone and it's the body you've always dreamed of. Fit and trim, smooth and sleek. Can I get an amen? Right? Hey, no more, I didn't add this, no more dad bods. This is great. Right? Like this, I love this hope that she had. I love this idea of redemption. You know, just being like a youth pastor for, for several years, we've had a lot of kids uh, coming out of our youth ministry throughout the years that just had different handicaps and things like that. I remember talking to a kid named David who just, his whole life was just born in kind of like this handicapped state. And I said, David, man, what are you looking most forward to about heaven? And he said, being able just to walk with Jesus. And I remember just like hearing him and just going, man, you are. Like, I don't have to give some vain hope or promise. It's like, you will you will have a new body walking with Jesus. I remember one day just sitting in like a worship service and this kid who known for years, but just one day, you know, I don't know, it just hit me. I'm opening my eyes during worship and I, I see him like in the front and he is just worshiping with everything he's got. And you see like his frail handicapped body and you see with everything he has within him, he is just worshiping Jesus. And I just remember sitting, like watching worship and I just brought to tears and the Lord's like, I'm gonna fix that. 
Like, you're going to see him worship with grace. You're going to see him worship just clarity, no issues. And I just remember, like, it hit me of, like, God, thank you for the promise of redemption of even our bodies. Like, how beautiful is that? That, that it's not like we just get a new body. It's the same body, but yet resurrected. I mean, we got to talk about this idea of this new body. You know, it's really interesting because this is a question, like, in heaven, will we recognize each other? How will this work? Like, will I know you? Will you know me? Like, of course, absolutely we will. I mean, here's the idea. Job, I think, said it the best in Job chapter 19. Job talks about how he will see God. Listen to this. Job 19, verse 25. Job says, for I know, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Interesting, right? He goes, I know that after this flesh, this skin is destroyed, in the same flesh I'm going to see God. And that's the truth. Like, after this skin, after this body is destroyed, in the same body I will see God. The idea that is even if someone dies and is cremated, the Bible talks about from ashes to ashes, well, from ashes to resurrection, in this same body. He goes, I know after this skin is destroyed, I shall see God. I shall see with my eyes. Not another. It's going to be me. And he goes, how my heart longs and yearns within me. There's like this longing for this. Paul's describing this longing for this body. There's a lot of other ways we could talk about this, but just think, just think about it. What will our bodies be like in heaven? Paul said it the best in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. He goes, here's what your body will be like. Listen to this. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So what will your body be like? He goes, hey, you bore the first Adam. You, you bore the image of man. You're going to bear the image of the last Adam. You bore an earthly body. Like you, you carried out. that. Like you're like a great-grandson or great-granddaughter of Adam. You have that body. But one day you'll bear the image of the heavenly man. So he's basically, you'll be like Jesus. I mean, 1 John 3, 2 says that. When you see him, you will be like him. I mean, I absolutely love this idea. After Jesus rose again, you see him sitting by the fire, eating a meal with the disciples. Jesus was not some disembodied ghost. Jesus still ate food. He, still, he had a resurrected body. He's with the disciples. I mean, think of all the encounters with Jesus after the resurrection. In John 20, the disciples are in a room. They're scared. They're terrified. And Jesus just like walks in their midst. It's like, hey, don't be afraid. Like, I'll be terrified. And that's what he says. You think about Luke 24, the two disciples are walking down the road of Emmaus or going to Emmaus. Jesus is talking with them, sharing with them. It says they broke bread. And as they broke bread, Jesus vanished in front of their eyes. In Acts chapter one, you see Jesus talking to the disciples one last time and he's taken up into heaven, right? And so you see Jesus walk through walls, teleport, fly. I'm not saying we're gonna do those things, but I'm saying we're gonna do those things. Like, I love this. I mean, I love the idea that Jesus goes, I, he like broke obviously the laws of physics and gravity. Why? Because he's not bound to this world. He had a new body, a heavenly body, a resurrected body. And here's what the Bible says, that you too will have that body. You bore the image of Adam, you'll bear the image of the heavenly man. Another verse, Philippians chapter three, verse 20. It says this, we wait for a savior. We wait for our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The Bible finds it necessary to talk about the redemption of our bodies. To say, hey, your lowly body will be resurrected like his glorious body. I don't think this is some far-fetched thing. The Bible just loves to just emphasize this promise and this hope of a new body. 
I mean, I, I, I still don't fully get it. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can even think of or dream of all the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Like, I fully don't get it, but I know that we will be like Jesus. We bore the image of Adam, we'll bear the image of the last Adam of Jesus, the heavenly Adam, the one who we get to bear his image, his heavenly glorious body. Paul, keep reading with me, goes on to say in verse two, talking about this longing for the body, look at verse two, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Two different times, Paul talks about how we groan in this body, right? Verse two, he says, in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly body. In verse four, he says, while we are still in this tent, we groan, we're burdened. A couple different times, Paul's like, we groan. You know, if you wake up in the morning and you feel those aches and pains, we groan. Like, this is what we do. Does anyone else wake up and is like, oh gosh, like I'm still alive? Like, does anyone else wake up groaning? Like, I wake up groaning. Like, this is what we do now. I don't know what it is, but I just feel like everything hurts now in a different way, right? I'm only 32. I'm like, but everything is different. I'm not 25 anymore. My body responds to things differently. Listen, I reached in my backpack this week and got like a cut in my nail, like a cut in your nail. I don't know if you've ever gotten that. I groaned. Like, this sound came out of me that was not earthly. It was painful. Still, my fingertip hurts, and I hate this. Like, if you've ever experienced suffering in some way, we have this groaning and this longing for a new body. That's what the scriptures put. We groan for this. One author, his name is Ben Witherington, uh, says, the groaning here is not because of doubt or fear. It is the hopeful longing of a woman in prospect of childbirth. Like we groan because yes, there's painful moments. Our body is weak. Our body is feeble. But this groaning is associated with there's new life to come. Like a woman in childbirth, there's new life to come. Like, yes, it's painful, but we groan because we want redemption. We're longing for redemption. I mean, would you guys not just agree that our bodies are incredibly weak? My mind and my body don't agree. My mind thinks I can still do things. My body's like, what are you trying to do? When I play basketball, my mind's like, cross this guy over. And my body's like, you can't do that. And it hurts and it's different. And I usually break my own ankles now and it's way different, right? Life is just different now. And he goes, this is what life is like. We groan, longing for redemption. There really is within us this realization, guys, and I hope we see it. Obviously, when God created man, he did not create us to die. He created us to live with him forever. Sin came in and plagued everything. Sin plagues everything. And it's interesting because you go, you know, aging and going through that process of life is absolutely normal, but it's also completely abnormal. Like, yes, this is what we do. We age. And there's a, the Bible talks about like how we can age gracefully and age with beauty. And like, there's something really beautiful about it. But at the same time, this was not God's original will for us. At the same time, aging reminds us, the pains of aging reminds us that, hey, we long for something else. This groaning is to create like a longing. Like, and I do laugh because when I grow now, I want you guys, next time you groan, think about these verses, right? Next time you're like, ah, oh, like think about, it's because your body is longing for redemption. Like we long for redemption. Paul actually says this in Romans 8 about creation itself. Paul's like, not only do you long for redemption, creation longs for redemption. Can we read this? It's Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Uh, we'll throw the verses up here so you can read it with us. But Romans 8, 19, listen to how Paul says this. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I love this. He's like, we groan for redemption creation itself is groaning for redemption. So sin plagues the body, soul, and spirit. Sin also plagues this world. It plagues creation. And even creation's like, come on, man, when are we going to be redeemed? Like, when can we get back to that Edenic light state? When can we get back to peace and harmony? Like, even creation longs for that redemption. And I just love this idea. Paul's picking up on it, going, listen, creation longs for redemption. Your bodies long for redemption. We are groaning, waiting for this. And notice what he's saying. It's not so that we can be further unclothed, but further clothed. Let me put it this way. A Christianity is not escapism. Just like, you know, I don't want this to sound like, how, how can we get out of this world and just go straight to heaven? It's so much more than that. He's not saying we don't want to be unclothed, but we want to be more clothed. Like, we don't want to be unclothed here. This even like is a reference back to the garden. We don't want to be found naked. We don't want to be found naked, he says, verse three. The idea is like when a man was found naked before God and had to cover himself up. The idea is like, we don't want to be found at odds with God. We don't want to be unclothed. We want to be further clothed. We want, we want mortality to be swallowed up by life. Even just that phrase, we want like life to swallow up our mortality. Because the reality is, and listen to that word mortality, like the reality is we are mortal. We will die. Like that is a part of our life, absolutely. But according to scriptures, in reality, we don't really die. We just move. We don't really die, but yet we do, but we don't. <laughs> and he's like, we just want mortality to be swallowed up by life. We want this, this life that we're going to be, sw- we don't want to be unclothed, but just further clothed with the glory of God. It's not how can we necessarily escape this, but how can we redeem this? How can we redeem this body that we're in? How can we redeem this moment that we're in? How can we redeem this creation that we're in? There's more of this mindset of not just unclothing, but being further clothed. That mortality might be swallowed up by life. Paul would put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to this. He says, for this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And that is the idea. Mortality is swallowed up by life. Death is swallowed up in victory. And then he says this is in verse 5. It's guaranteed, man. It's going to happen. Verse 5, what is he going to say? He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is the second time Paul says this exact phrase. The first time was chapter 1, verse 22, where he said in chapter 1, he says, God has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul's trying to emphasize this. How do we know? How do we know we'll be in heaven with a new body? How do we know we'll have a new body one day? He goes, God has given you a Spirit today as a guarantee. I love this. God has given you a down payment saying, you can trust me. It's yours. Here's the Spirit. I've given you the most, I've given you myself. I've given you the Spirit. It's a guarantee that you'll have a new body. That's why, I don't know if you guys get this. The Bible constantly tries to use reassuring words because so often we doubt. Paul's like, we know, we know. And we're like, do we know? Right? He's like, the Spirit has a guarantee. I'm like, is it guaranteed? We constantly have doubt when it comes to like our salvation, when it comes to heaven, resurrection, eternal life. And so often I see the Bible say this. Uh, John said, I write these things so you can know you have eternal life. I mean, the Bible's constantly trying to reassure us of our faith. 
reassures of the object of our faith. And here's what God is saying. God is saying, I, I have declared this. I have said this, and I've given you my spirit as a guarantee. The word guarantee here means a pledge or a partial payment that required future payments, payments, but gave the one receiving the guarantee a legal claim to the goods in question. We have a legal claim to this new body. The spirit is that guarantee. It's that guarantee. Charles Spurgeon would say about this verse, so the Holy Spirit is a part of heaven itself. The work of the Holy Spirit in the soul is the bud of heaven. He's saying the Spirit is that guarantee. It's that bud. It's that more things to come. The Spirit is the guarantee of this new, this new body. Paul, again, the first thing is this, longing for a new heavenly body. By the way, it is absolutely okay to long for a new heavenly body. Again, walking with people who suffer and in so many different capacities, you realize this is a big part of just Christian comfort is this promise of redemption, this promise of redemption of our body. Like, don't pass over these verses. It's okay to say, hey, listen, this body was not meant to die. This body was not meant to suffer. That was not God's plan. That was Satan's plan. And yet God's still gonna redeem the same body. And behold, your eyes shall see the Lord and not another. How your heart yearns within you. That makes sense. This body shall see Jesus. Even if I'm died and I'm cremated or put to ashes, this body will see Jesus. How my eyes will see him and not another. Amen? We long for this. And then Paul says, not only do we long for a heavenly body, but we long for a heavenly home, a heavenly home. Look at verse six. What does he say? So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we should rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. All right. This section, verse six through eight, answers the questions, what happens to believers when they die? If you wonder like, what happens to believers when they die, he's actually incredibly clear to try to actually clear up any confusion around this. He says, to be at home with the body, we're away from the Lord. To be absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. Actually, the Greek kind of puts it like this, we'll put it up here, in the body, absent from the Lord. Out of the body, present with the Lord. Paul couldn't be more clear. He goes, when you're in the body, right here and now, we're away from the Lord. Another translation you might read, it says to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I really want you guys to hear this. What happens to a believer when they die? Simple answer, they go straight immediately into the presence of God. Like I, I so believe that Paul is trying to clear up any speculation around this. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The idea that as soon as you breathe your last breath here on earth, you breathe your first breath in heaven. I mean, this is so beautiful. This is so comforting. I think, you know, Paul has to constantly remind, by the way, the Corinthians of these things, because remember, there's like a dualistic theology being preached that the body is evil and the spirit is good. And the Bible's trying to say, no, no, the body and the soul, they're both evil. They're both corrupted by sin. God redeems both. God redeems both. And this idea that Paul has to constantly redeem this mindset of the body, because people say, no, oh, the body's evil. Do what you want. Sleep around. Do what you want with your body. And the point's like, no, no, God's going to resurrect this body. This body belongs to God, First Corinthians 6. This body is not my own. It was bought at a price. I'm going to glorify God in my body and in my spirit, which are his. The whole idea, the Bible speaks of redemption for both sides. And there's different mindsets going around that the body is wicked, the body is evil. And I say, no, no, when you're absent from the body, you're immediately present with the Lord. Now, I want us to think through this really quick. Because this is a question that's asked. You know, my, my mom was telling me this, how my grandparents used to believe in a theology that's not super common today, but they believed in this. Maybe some people still do to this day. It's called soul sleep, right? Like as soon as a Christian dies, their soul sleeps until the resurrection. Until the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Thessalonians 4, you're kind of sleeping until that moment. Paul, I believe, is clearing up that here. He says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. As soon as you're absent from this body, you're present with the Lord. There's not this soul sleep idea. You're immediately in God's presence. And I do believe this is an encouraging thought with the church has always communicated. 
that we say, hey, the orthodox faith has been to be absent from the body, is to be present with God, to be in his presence. You know, now, here's a question, and I want to like, kind of throw a curveball. People go, well, what, what, what do you like in heaven? Like, what happens in that, like, immediately, if someone dies today, what is your body like? Because isn't the resurrection future? So, like, if the resurrection, 1 Thessalonians 4, happens in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and that has not happened yet, like, what are we in heaven? There's a couple ideas around this. The idea is that as soon as a Christian dies and goes in the presence of God, some believe that you get like an intermediate body, like a body temporarily. Some believe that your soul or your conscience or your spirit is with God, so you're still meeting God's presence, but without a body. Uh, some believe that if you think of eternity and you think of time, it doesn't really make sense. So once we die and we're in the presence of God, like what, the he- what is time? What the heck is time? You're merely the presence of God. So some say that the resurrection has happened and taken place once you die because there's no such thing as time. That's one of those like psychological crazy ones to me but I love it, kind of. I'm not sure how to answer this. The point Paul is trying to make is just absent from the body, present with the Lord. Intermediate body, so your spirit and conscious with God. Is there some sort of resurrection that's already happened and time doesn't really matter? Don't really know? That's not the point. The point is that you're absent from the body and you're present with the Lord. That is the comfort that you and I have with Christ. Church, I really do want us to hear this because I think this is a common question we get. And I think that Paul is trying to create this longing, not just for a new body, but this longing for home. Look what he says in verse eight. He says, to be at home with the Lord, to be at home with the Lord. I mean, he, there's this longing to be at home with the Lord. And Paul is saying, until we're at home with the Lord, we walk by faith, not by sight. That until this time, until we're with God face to face, we are walking by faith and not by sight. We need to talk about this. Because we as followers of Jesus, guys, understand this. This verse can like be pulled out of context, but we do understand this. We walk by faith, not by sight. Let's be honest though. So often we walk by sight. Like so often I walk by sight. So often the things of this world really move me more than they need to. So often sight plays way more of a role in my day-to-day emotions and how I feel than it should. But as followers of Jesus, he says, no, no, we don't walk by what we see. We walk by faith. You see, one author says this. Here's what it means to, to walk by sight. He says, to live by sight is to act as if we are in control, to operate on the principle that we can fix things. It is to rely on our own abilities, to act as if position and reputation uh, and appearance matter rather than clinging on by faith to the fact that the only things of the Lord will last. See, the idea is we try to operate in our own strength. We try to fix things. He goes, that's what it means to, to walk by faith, but we don't walk by faith, we walk by sight. Or we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. Let me actually put it this way too. Um, everyone walks by faith. Who doesn't walk by faith? I mean, really think about this. We truly do walk by faith. Absolutely we do. But what is the object of our faith? The object of our faith is Jesus. It's not so much about my faith or my great faith or my little faith. It's about the object of my faith. Every human walks by faith. When you talk to people who say, I believe that when you die, you just cease to exist. You are walking by faith. You don't know that. You're actually kind of hoping that when you die, there's no afterlife, so there's no judgment. You don't stand before God. See, they're actually walking by faith. They're banking on the fact that when you die, you just literally cease to exist. That takes a lot of faith. Like, I don't have enough faith to believe that when I die, just that's it. That when Hitler died, there's no, there's no punishment, there's no justice. I, like, I don't have enough faith for that. 
Like everyone walks by faith to some extent, but what is the object of our faith? And obviously that is Jesus. That is the person of Jesus. And Paul is communicating this, that our hope and trust is in him in this process. So here's the idea. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hey, when it comes to walking by faith, it doesn't mean you check your mind at the door. It doesn't mean you don't use reason. No, there's substance to our faith. There's evidence to our faith. We've gone through that and over that. We talk about the resurrection of Jesus. There's evidence for that. I mean, there's so many things we could go over and talk over, but there's still an element of faith that we cannot deny. Now, when it comes to following Jesus, we do not walk by sight, but we walk by faith. And we have to embrace this because not all of our questions will be answered on this side of eternity. We will still have questions. We'll still have doubts. We'll still have fears. We'll still have those things, but we don't walk by sight. We don't walk by the things that we see, but the things are not seen. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Amen. This is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, on this journey to being at home, right now we're going to walk by faith, not by sight. I don't see this new body. I don't see this heavenly home, but I'm walking by faith, not by sight. Because the things that are seen, those things are temporary. The things that are unseen, those things are eternal. And Paul is constantly trying to get us this mindset. In fact, Paul, or the author of Hebrews would say, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That no one here can ever please God if they don't exercise faith. Every man and woman that took a risk for the kingdom of God, for Jesus, for the gospel, they did it by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, Hebrews 11, by faith. See, this is the idea. We walk by faith, not by sight. The just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith, right? Habakkuk, Romans, this idea that it's just by faith. This is how we do life as followers of Jesus. Now everyone exercises faith, but the object of our faith, Jesus is much greater than the object of their faith, a lack of Jesus. We do walk by faith, not by sight. That's how we carry on this life in this moment. He goes, we're not living by the things that are seen, but by the things that are unseen. We we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. And then here's the point though. The point is verse 8 so that we might be at home with the Lord, to create this longing with the Lord. Because I want you to see something, obviously. When it comes to heaven, uh, heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. The point is that we're at home with the Lord. If you've ever felt like you're not at home here, like join the club. If you ever feel like, I don't fit in, this is weird, I don't know if I like this, can I tell you, none of us should feel at home here. This is not our home. We have another home. You know, C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He's like, if you ever feel like you're not at home here, it's because you were made for another world. Like you and I were made for another world. So this is not our true home. Like this idea though, to be at home with the Lord, again, there's this unrest. And I think at times there's this discontent in our life because God's trying to remind us, this is not your home. If we're trying to seek so much comfort here that we think, how can I just make life as easy as possible? If we're trying to make this world our home too often, and the Bible says, this can't be your home. You are not made for this world. I want us church, please embrace this. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven with the Lord. At home with the Lord. Again, heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. That that is what makes heaven heaven. Heaven's not heaven because there's streets of gold and your mansion there and like some new fruit on a tree every day. That's not heaven. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. That's why it's home. At home, where? With the Lord. That's what makes heaven heaven. I love how Randy Alcorn put it in his book on heaven. He says this, listen, we may imagine We want a thousand different things, but God is the one we really long for. His presence brings satisfaction. His absence brings thirst and longing. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. Everyone say amen. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. A longing that involves not only our inner beings, but our bodies as well. Being with God is the heart and soul of heaven. Every other heavenly pleasure will derive from and be secondary to his presence. 
God's greatest gift to us is and will always be himself. Amen. Listen, this is the point. This is the greatest gift. The greatest gift God gives us is not heaven, it's Jesus. We got to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not you get to go to heaven one day, it's you get to be with Jesus one day. Do we get the difference? You know, when I was a kid, I think what happens so often in our Christian life, you go, I just don't want to go to hell. Then you go, I want to go to heaven. And then I think over time you go, I just want to be with Jesus. And I can't pretend to act like I'm always there. But I think the reality, the desires change over time. You go, you know, as you spend time with Jesus in prayer, talking to him, enjoying him, learning from him, sitting at his feet, you go, what is heaven without Jesus? There's no such thing. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. See, the gospel is not one day you get heaven. The gospel is you get God. The gospel is God. He's the good news. He is, as we sung earlier, so selfless, so generous, so holy. There's none other, so faithful, so wonderful. He's that one. The good news is not that. Guess what? If you believe in Jesus, you die and go to heaven. That's good news. But that's like secondary good news to the fact that, no, you get to die and get to be with Jesus. Again, I love how Samuel Rutherford put it. This one pastor, he goes, if I were to go to heaven and Jesus was not there, that would be hell to me. But if I were to go to hell and Jesus was there, that would be heaven to me. See, our perspective has to change. Heaven is less of a place or a destination, and it's more of a person. And when it comes to the church, and I think what we've preached, we preach like this evangelical, don't you want to die and go to heaven? And reality, it's like, no, don't you want to be with Jesus? But have we created this, do we know who Jesus is? Do we worship Jesus? Do we spend time with Jesus? Have we talked enough about Jesus? Sometimes I think in our pursuit or talk of heaven, we don't want to miss out on the person. Yes, you were created for a place, that is heaven, but you're primarily, you're created for a person, and his name is Jesus. And it's only in Jesus you'll be satisfied. It's Jesus what we should crave and long for. And I genuinely believe that sometimes, maybe it's more in the American church, but we create a longing for heaven and not a longing for the person that person should be and is Jesus. That he is heaven. That in his presence, there is fullness of joy. The idea is that God with you, with you, God, God with you, there is fullness of joy. It's not so much about the streets of gold. It's not so much about eating a meal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which will be really cool. It's not so much about that stuff. It's not so much about the new body. It's about being with Jesus. And he says in verse eight, at home with the Lord. Where is your home? Wherever the Lord is. Like the, the point is that's where you should find that rest and satisfaction and meaning. The greatest gift God could give us is what? Himself, right? The greatest gift God has given you is what? Himself. It's Jesus. See, and this is what heaven is. We create this longing for the person of Jesus. Yes, you're created for a place, but more importantly, you're created for a person and his name is Jesus. Amen. We want to worship Jesus now. We want to sing about Jesus. We want to invite you into a loving relationship with Jesus if you don't have one. We want to apologize and say, if we've preached heaven more than Jesus, we have missed the point. If we said, hey, just don't go to hell. Hey, just go to heaven. No, no. We say, do you love Jesus? Do you want a relationship with Jesus? Know that Jesus loves you. Jesus longs a relationship with you. I love the, the original question, like, will we be bored in heaven? We should probably be asking, will God be bored with us? It's crazy to me that we go, will I be bored? It's like, well, God's like, God, I'm going there. Like, you're not going to be bored with me. The love of God for us overwhelms. It's overwhelming. Overwhelming. It makes no sense that he wouldn't get bored with us, that he loves us this much, that he would give his best for us. The greatest gift that he could give us is himself when he gave it. His name is Jesus. 
and we're invited into a loving relationship with him. And we want to invite you into that, to not put your trust and hopefully one day you can go to heaven, but one day you can be with Jesus by believing and trusting in Jesus. Amen? Yes, let us worship our Jesus. Let us worship our Lord. We're going to pray and we're going to worship God and we're going to thank him. And we're going to be reminded that there is no commandments here today. It's just about this longing that God has created within us, what God has done for us. We just want to pray that God would create this longing for Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that even though, even though we are here, you still allow us to sit at your feet. You still allow us to experience you. God, I just pray for myself and, and everyone in this place that you remind us when we get, when we just want heaven or we just want something from you, remind us, God, that you are the good news, that we get you. And so, Father, I just ask for everyone in this room, if there's anyone in here that does not yet know you, Jesus, not yet believe in yours, or is trying to get something from you, that we would just give that up, that today we would say, I want you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you that we can only love you because you first loved us. Thank you for your pursuit of us. And Father, um, we just want to thank you for the promise of just redemption, even redemption of our bodies. That God, one day this weak, broken, frail body will be redeemed, that we will bear the image of the heavenly man. Thank you for those promises. Thank you that when we see you, we'll be like you. Thank you, Jesus, that we have a home that is with you in heaven, that is just simply with you. We thank you for this home. God, remind us that we're not satisfied here because this is not our home, that we were created for another home, for another world, and that is with you, Jesus. So we thank you. We just want to worship you now. We just want to praise you now. We want to set our mind on you, God, who you are. You are so selfless. You are so generous. You are so faithful. We praise you for that, Jesus. In your precious name, amen.